0: Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts, the 27th chapter. I'll be reading verses 1 through 16, and then we'll take up the other verses as we come to them this morning. Hear now God's Word. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan Regiment. Uh, augustine reg- regiment and so entering a ship of uh, adamantum we put to sea meaning to sail along the coast of asia aristarchus a macedonian of thessalonica was with us and the next day we landed at sidon and julius treated paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off uh, Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, uh, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off uh, uh, Canidus, uh, the wind was, per, uh, was permitting us to proceed, was not permitting us to proceed. We sailed under the shelter of Crete and Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lassie. Lassie. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because of the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to, to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, Putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called uh, uh, Yer- uh So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. I was just thinking before I'm going to actually start what I prepared for the sermon. I want. I was thinking about what Paul said in the opening chapter of Romans one. Here he's been wanting to go to Rome for so long, and here he's he's not there yet, and he's not he's got some more difficulties to get to. But I I think about the drive, the the vision, and the commitment that he had, and in the opening chapter of the book of the epistle to the Romans, he says this. Now, verse 13, now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that's an understatement, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so Paul has that vision. That's why he is so driven to get to Rome. And uh, he's, now God is taking him in an unusual way. So. What we know is that God has purposed everything. But from our perspective, which we should always remember is an extremely limited perspective, we are often left scratching our heads at what God is doing. Why didn't God just get Paul to Rome without all this trouble? Why didn't he book him a first-class passage? We can understand why God might use a life-threatening storm to chasten a fleeing prophet like Jonah. He was running from God, and the Lord would use the storm and the sea to retrieve him. Hard things happen, chastenings happen. That happens, of course, when we rebel, as it did with Jonah. But Paul was not only not a rebellious man, he was actually the contrary He strongly desired to go to Rome. So why has God taken Paul and his companions and put them into this horrific situation? Surely Job's friends would have assumed that Paul must have done something terribly wrong. He was being punished. And think about this. I think we are all prone to think over everything in our life as either some kind of a reward for being good... This must be happening to me because I'm good. Or perhaps a punishment because I've been bad. So something bad happens and I immediately start to ask, what did I do to deserve this? But the Bible teaches us that there are other things going on all the time. God brings good things out of what we think are bad things and sometimes what we think are good things turn out to be bad things. We have the advantage of knowing how this story ends, and that gives us some resolution. But on the front end, this is puzzling. Nevertheless, Paul had the advantage. He didn't know how this ended in in the particulars, but he did have the advantage of trusting God for his future. He already knew in his heart that to live is Christ and to die is gain. But more than that, he also had God's Word, and in his case, God's Word directly to him that he would see Rome. God's promises were certain for Paul, and God's promises are also certain for us. And even though we might not get the direct word in the same way Paul did, God's Word is God's Word. And wherever God's Word has spoken to us, wherever God's Word has made promises to us, Those are certain. And so God has given us this story to teach us to trust Him in storms. This chapter involves Paul's journey from Caesarea to Rome. And Paul was certainly no stranger to sea travel. At this point in Paul's life, we know of 11 voyages on the Mediterranean before he has ever set sail now to Rome. One historian estimates that Paul had logged over 3,500 frequent sailor miles. This means he was an experienced sailor. Because keep in mind, this was not the Carnival Cruise Line here. This was rough going. This is why he is able to offer seafaring advice. Prior to this event, Paul told the Corinthians, think about this, prior to this, he tells the Corinthians three times... I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water often. One harrowing experience at sea would be more than enough for one person. But for Paul, this had become almost routine. The Roman Empire did not have its own fleet of ships to transport prisoners, so Julius had the power to requisition a merchant ship to transport an imperial, the imperial prisoner. Luke and Aristarchus, Aristarchus are present with Paul. Notice the 16 uses of the plural we in this chapter and almost as many in the next chapter. And as a result, we get a detailed description from Luke, the historian, who under divine inspiration is recording these events. And this means that we receive both historical and theological insight. Since it was a private ship, this would explain why Luke and Aristarchus were able to book passage as well. It looks like Julius assisted them in that. What a blessing to have these loyal friends by his side. And so this uh, this first ship was a coastal ship, not really one designed for the open seas. Verse 3, and the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. And that's a, just a great uh, note that God inserts here, and I'm going to speculate a little bit. Paul's kindness and respect for his captors must have been impressive. Paul has won Julius in some way. He's already has his favor. In fact, I'm speculating completely here, but by the time this story is over and, and the things we see with Julius, I really have to wonder whether or not he has already become a Christian or does so in the end. This reminds me of how Joseph's jailer treated him with favor in Genesis. And how the Philippian jailer was also under the influence of the Apostle Paul. Remember Paul and Silas singing in the jail? That must have been bizarre. But God used that to bring the Philippian jailer and his household to faith. So Paul is interested to preach to Caesar and to Caesar's household, but he's not neglecting his jailer, his captor, and everybody else we're going to see on the ship. Remember that the gospel has already been spreading for a number of years since the day of Pentecost. In Acts 11, verses 19 and 21, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose after Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Paul himself had visited the area twice. Again, this was the first ship on which they sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, and they came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There wasn't much wind, so this delays them a bit, and that pushed them into a more dangerous season on the sea. I remember reading the story about the Donner Pass group that left Missouri and because of a number of delays, they left several weeks later than they should have. And on the back end of that trip, that's why they got caught in the terrible blizzards. Had they left even two weeks earlier, they would have missed that. And same kind of situation here. Um, and so at Myra, they transferred to a larger ship, verses 6 through 8. There the centurion found the Alexandrian ship uh, sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. And when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off uh, uh, Canidus, I looked up the pronunciation of that because I wasn't sure how you pronounce a word that starts with C, uh, but Canidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lassie. When I saw Fair Havens, I thought of a retirement home, but um, I don't think that's what this was. So uh, so you, I sent you some maps. I hope you took a look at those a little bit so you can see that they're kind of going up the coast of the Mediterranean, sticking close to the shoreline. ship's not big, but they don't have much in the way of wind. That's about to change. Verse 9 tells us, that much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because the fast was already over. And this is an interesting statement that allows us to date this journey as well as understand why it was so dangerous. Um, navigation in the Mediterranean after September the 14th was considered very perilous and after November the 11th it was considered impossible. Uh, This was the peak of what we would just call the hurricane season, the storm season. So the ship that Paul and his companions were boarding was about to set out in late October since they are already past the Day of Atonement. That's This historical note helps helps us get a date here. And because of the treacherous weather, Paul warned them not to go. But since it was the edge of storm season, the owner and the captain decided that they would take a chance. Rome paid a bonus for delivery of wheat and other supplies in the winter months, and so the owner and captain of the ship were inclined to take risk. meant more money. However, they were not only risking cargo, as we will see, they will be risking 276 souls. So this was not a small ship. John Stott comments, "The, "...the gentle southerly breeze which arose deceived them into thinking..." that they could manage another 40 miles. But a wind of hurricane force, typhonic, called the nor'easter, originally uh, eucalon, a uh, hybrid compound of euros, meaning east wind, and the Latin aquilo, the north wind, swept down from the Cretan mountains, forcing the ship to be driven, basically just pushing the ship where they didn't really have control. Already the vessel was in great danger For once blown out of Crete, there were no more harbors, only open sea. So now they very quickly from no wind to too much wind, and now they're out in open sea. Luke then describes the severity of the storm and the desperate efforts of the crew to save the ship and themselves. Listen to this and just put yourself, you know, try to have a mental image of what's going on here. We secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, this is verse 17, they used cables to undergird the ship. I'm not sure how they did that because that I means they had to get a cable under the ship and they're basically using some kind of winch to tighten uh, cables around the outside of the ship to keep it from falling apart. I hope you know, I don't know if any of you would want to volunteer for that labor and that work to attach those. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat upon us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Stranded on the sea, cold, hungry, unable to face the winds, and at the mercy of the elements, Luke writes, All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. We're finished. This is reminiscent of the words that Dante put over the gate of hell in the inferno. Quote, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. This was hell. No doubt everyone on the ship felt the same way. There might be some of you who have felt hopeless feelings before or might have those right now. In fact, our culture is filled with hopeless people. You see it on the news, you see it on the faces of people who are going through great trials and difficulties. If I may take even an aside for a moment, Yale experts and even our own vice president told us recently that people are now suffering from climate anxiety. The Yale study reported that every day the news uh, delivers fresh images and headlines about climate-related disasters, devastating floods, disappearing lakes, and a melting doomsday glacier, and the halting response of the world leaders to act with urgency. Now many Americans are growing increasingly anxious about the perilous state of our planet. Mental health clinicians are seeing more patients come in with symptoms of climate change, anxiety, so referred to as eco-anxiety, eco-grief, or climate doom, and they're not always sure what to do about it. The experts are finding a substantial number who now say they are unable to stop fretting about the risk proposed by global warming. Some are not having children now because of this. Well... Let me tell you something. The folks on Paul's ship had real climate anxiety. Desperation is seen as they start to lighten the load and throw everything they could overboard. And you might recall, again, a similar situation with Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. Notice where the wind came from. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. Acts 27 is the very opposite of Jonah's story. These sailors were about to perish because God's judgment was on Jonah. So they, what they end up doing with Jonah, they tossed him into the sea too. Here the crew's life was safe because, in Acts 27, the crew's life was safe because the obedient Paul was on board. Whereas the other, of course, Jonah found himself on a stormy sea as a result of his fleeing God's call, to testify to a pagan nation, the pagan power. But in Acts 27, Paul finds himself on a stormy sea as he is obediently moving toward the fulfillment of his call to declare the gospel to a pagan power. So without a view of the sun or stars for days, there's no hope of navigation. You don't know where you are. All you see is water. Darkness and water. So we should remember that these circumstances are not a surprise to God. As Amos three six teaches us, if there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? So many of us, this is a, a, one of these lessons I want to draw out here for you. Many of us falsely assume that if we are a faithful Christian, then everything ought to go smoothly. But God often has another path which is contrary to the smooth one. We're not promised that we will never face peril or even life-threatening situations. But like Job who said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, we still have faith, not necessarily that we will live, but faith that even if we die, God will never forsake us. So the professional sailors had failed, and Paul reminds them that they should have listened to him. And I don't think this was so much of, I told you so. But he is trying to get their attention and say, now you need to listen to me. He had no doubt recounted all of his vast experience of having been shipwrecked and having been to sea so many times. He's not a young man here. He's now going to make another announcement about what's going to come to pass next. So we begin in verse 22, and now I urge you to take heart, be encouraged, don't be hopeless, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul, you must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Some interesting things in this text. So this messenger, an angel from God, comes to Paul in the night with a word of God. This appears to be an answer to a very specific prayer that Paul had offered on behalf of the men who were on the ship in the storm. Because verse 24 says, indeed, God has granted you, God has answered you that all, uh, in regard to saving all of those who are with you. God gave Paul this specific promise by way of special revelation. But we can draw from this a more general truth, which is that God always keeps his word because he is a promise-keeping God. God's Word is God's Word, whether by the special revelation of a vision, in Paul's case, or by special inspiration as we find it in Scripture. Paul tells the frightened men, starting in verse 25, Therefore, take heart, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, About midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land, and they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. So they know they're approaching land. It's getting more and more shallow. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. So they're trying to get in a lifeboat here. They can only imagine the panic of 276 people in a massive storm on a sinking ship. Paul notices some of the men pretending to lower the anchors. They're lowering the anchors to keep the ship from running aground. But really they were attempting to lower the lifeboat into the water so that they could escape. And they were going to save themselves, but the only safety was really on the ship, which reminds us of Noah. And this should remind us of the church, even the sanctuary, this belly of a ship which is what this sanctuary is designed to look like. Because here is where salvation is, safety. So Paul warns the centurion that if they do this, no one can be saved because they're going to need a full crew if they're going to make landfall and be saved. Um, This is an interesting juxtaposition, though, between what God has promised Paul and what we might think as a practical as practical decision making God's promise to save Paul and the others on the ship did not lead Paul to do nothing rather Paul was busy directing traffic and shouting instructions pleading for his overseers to heed his advice and in verse 33 And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for uh, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when they had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God, and in the presence of them all, and when he had broken it, he began to eat. Something we're going to do in a few minutes. Then they were all encouraged and all took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. John Stott commented, Dawn was about to break when Paul made his third intervention, urging everybody to eat because they had not done so for a fortnight, either because of the constant suspense or because of seasickness or because the food supplies had been saturated, or because cooking had become impossible in the gale. But now he pressed them to eat in order to survive, for he added, seemingly with an allusion to the teaching of Jesus, none of them would lose even a single hair. Then they threw out all the remaining grain in a vain attempt to salvage the ship before they abandoned it no doubt the captain was going to need to demonstrate that he had done everything humanly possible to salvage whatever they could so that he could avoid legal legal troubles when this was over then in verse 39 when it was day they did not recognize the land they didn't know where they were but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible and they let it, and they let go the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes. And they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. This island that they run aground on is Malta. And if you look in the Mediterranean, there's this little speck of an island. Out there in the middle of the Mediterranean, called Malta. Uh, Malta has an amazing history. Sometimes we'll talk about that on another day. But there is a bay in Malta that is today called Saint Paul's Bay. And the and the soldiers, verse forty-two. Soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. There were, Paul wasn't the only prisoner here. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. N.T. Wright points out a similar situation with the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. We recall the Philippian jailer was ready to kill himself because he thought his prisoners had escaped. That's how the system worked. No sentimentality, no common sense, no fellow feeling allowed. Rome hadn't got where it had by allowing people to go soft around the edges at at the critical moment. It is only the centurion who has realized that he has one of the most unusual prisoners he's ever met in his care who saves the day. He treated Paul kindly right from the start and has not regretted it, even though he didn't take his advice at Fair Havens. So God brings Paul through another storm. He emerges as a man of faith and courage. Because in the face of seemingly impossible difficulties, he trusted in the Word of God. Think of the last words of this chapter. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. God kept His Word as He always does. Sometimes we hear someone say something like, I know you hadn't seen me at worship in a while, but I've been going through a hard time. But it's precisely in the ship, in the church, and in the worship of God that gives us the endurance to withstand hard times and, most importantly, that opens the doors of our hearts to receive the promises of God when we need it most. Sometimes Christians treat the church lightly. Eh, we'll go if we feel like it. We'll go late. We'll... Skip this, we'll skip that, it's not that big. I tell you what, when the, there's a storm coming, you better know where to be then, and you better have been there ahead of time. Because that's the place of safety. That's the place of salvation. With His promises comes His peace. To have one is to have the other. Peace happens when the people in the pews determine that their recited creeds will be the concrete convictions of their actual hearts. Peace comes when you actually plant your feet on what you claim to be true, which is the gospel, the good news that Jesus has come and that Jesus has risen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this recording of this story, this inspiration, this uh example of your power, of your faithfulness, of your promise. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and for Luke and Aristarchus. We thank you for Julius. We thank you for this whole incident to teach us to trust you in the storm. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The language Paul used in Acts 27 was that he belonged to God. Here's a basic truth. If you belong to God, then His promises belong to you. If you belong to God, His promises belong to you. Second Corinthians 1, 19-20, Paul wrote this, For the Son of God... Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Sylvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. So do you find sometimes that your faith is very fragile or that it's prone to collapse at the first sign of trouble? Can you say with Paul that God is the God to whom you belong and whom you worship? It's not so much about whether you know Jesus, but does he know you? Not do you have Jesus, but do you belong to Jesus? Do you believe that what God says he will do? Before we come to the table... I want to read from Isaiah 43, which I think is very applicable to this story we've heard today in Acts 27. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place, since you were precious in my sight. You have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him, yes, I have made him. That is his word to us today as we come to the table. And let me remind you, we talked about this Wednesday night. Everybody should sing. We sing together as a as an act of communion. If you don't sing well, sing anyway. Learn to sing. Sing a little louder next week. But singing is a communal thing that we do that God has commanded us to do. And we do it joyfully, enthusiastically, and not out of just something to fill the time. This isn't elevator music. This is holy music unto the Lord. So let's worship Him as we commune together. Father, thank You for calling us, for rescuing us when we were lost and hopeless and without Christ in the world. You sent Your Son to rescue us, to calm the seas... And to give us his victory. So Lord, send us forth with your blessing. Use us this week to represent Christ to the world. Bless our families, our marriages, our children, and our labors. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Amen. Amen.